This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Susan Lindauer, former congressional staffer, then U.S. Intel asset, standing by to talk about 9-11, as we approach the 17th anniversary. Before that, just a reminder, no live YouTube stream tonight. The live video stream continues or resumes next week. Hey, have you checked out my two podcasts, Conspiracy Unlimited? It drops three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Listen and subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. And the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Serrett. New episodes every Wednesday. And it's part of the Jericho Network in association with Westwood One. Just Google it. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Susan Lindauer is here to discuss what happened when she tried to disclose the true facts of a 9-11 warning and Iraqi pre-war intelligence to Congress and the nightmare of her arrest via the Patriot Act. As a U.S. intelligence asset, Susan covered anti-terrorism at the Iraqi embassy in New York from 1996 up to the invasion. Independent sources have confirmed she gave advance warning about the 9-11 attack shortly after requesting to testify before Congress about successful elements of pre-war intelligence. Lindauer became one of the first non-Arab Americans arrested on the Patriot Act as an Iraqi agent. She is the author of Extreme Prejudice. Susan Lindauer, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing great. This is an exciting 9-11 anniversary because President Donald Trump is now reviewing uh, uh, briefing memos from about 20 or 30 9-11 experts who have challenged the official story of 9-11. Now, how did you find out about that? Robert David Steele has been organizing it, and he's gone to experts from Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth and uh, Barbara Honiger, uh, experts on the Pentagon. He's come to me, and we've all put together uh, 
one-page briefings for President Trump and also video segments, which are going to be viewed by the White House, revealing what we have discovered in our research about 9-11. Well, I've learned sort of back-channel through a mutual friend who, uh, Roger Stone, wrote a a foreword for his book. And uh, he he uh, assured me through Roger Stone that that, uh, Donald Trump is very much looking into a lot of this stuff. Um, Now, it's interesting that that, uh, Neil Bush, uh, or Jeb Bush, my apologies, Jeb Bush dropped out. Uh, He claimed he had uh, campaign funding issues, but I think it was sort of missed by a lot of people. He sort of muttered, Donald Trump did, muttered something during one of the presidential uh, debates about the Bush family and 9-11. And then all of a sudden, Jeb drops out. Did you, do you remember that incident? I remember it, too, that there was kind of a, a dig behind the scenes that, you know, if, if only President Bush had done, had, had, had paid attention to the intelligence community, we would have, we could, we might have been able to avoid this catastrophe. Right, right. And then, as I say, which is true, which is absolutely true. And that's why you're here. Let's let me ask you, though, how you you got into this, because, you know, you were what is a congressional staffer doing at the Iraqi embassy? What what was your role? Well, well, now I was there. I had two different lives. (laughs) Congressional staffers are prohibited by law from having contact with foreign governments period, end of conversation. It is not allowed to happen at all. So I uh, became an asset after my work on Capitol Hill as a press secretary for Congressman Ron Wyden and uh, Carol, Senator Carol Mosley Braun from Illinois. Um, and I, 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 in, in between, in between those things, I, I had begun contacts with the Libya House to starting uh, discussions for the Lockerbie trial, and it it really became a you know a political cover to say that I was a uh, a media consultant or a you know I had to, I had to explain what I was doing and I couldn't tell anybody what I, what it really was so that became the the the, the legend. So. As it- so just not we're not here necessarily to talk about Libya, but this the you were there to negotiate uh, the, uh, the I, t- turning I, over the Pan Am hijackers. Yes, the the first thing that I did, uh, I I was the CIA and defense intelligence asset covering both Libya and Iraq at the United Nations. And I had a defense intelligence handler because, of course, the CIA is not allowed to operate in the United States, even though the United Nations created a a special loophole for that because these are foreign this is you know, embassies are foreign territory. So we, we, we were kind of dodging in between that and but the defense intelligence agency had a need to know about terrorist activities uh, overall. So we were they, it was a back channel for the purpose of gaining intelligence on terrorism activities. And Gaddafi uh, and <clears throat> I, I dealt with Gaddafi and, and Mubarak in Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, um, Malaysia, Iraq, I, I, Yemen. I dealt with a whole bunch of different countries 
and they did not you know some of them had an inkling that I was in that I had intelligence ties because my CIA handler was famous had been exposed as a as as a CIA person and he uh, what what happened was we went to Libya and we said look he has the capability he was in Lebanon during the civil war and the real story of Lockerbie was the CIA during the, the during the host, hostage crisis of Terry Anderson and um, oh a CNN bureau chief, there were about thirty or forty Western hostages who were who who the Lebanese civil war would trade for the jihadists would trade for cash when they needed money to buy weapons. So they were ta- or excuse me, it was it wasn't thirty or forty, it was ninety. Excuse me, it was ninety hostages, and Terry Waite, yes. Anglican bishop, was one of them. And these people lived in horrible conditions. They were they they were literally chained to the wall uh, with a bucket for a toilet. Right, and Terry Waite was kidnapped a, twice, I think. Yes, yes, he was. He was released by one group and then captured again. Um, and so my CIA handler had been there. And what happened was the CIA, the, the, the justification for this operation was the CIA was trying to infiltrate the Hezbollah jihadists, what was then called Islamic Jihad. And they were trying to find out where those hostages were, were being kept. So they justified doing business with them, trafficking heroin. And the Islamic the, the, the Islamic jihadists had two sources of income. One was the kidnappings and one was heroin trafficking. So the CIA would, it was helping them move the heroin into London, Frankfurt, and New York. And ostensibly that was to create a different cash channel that would allow them to let go of the hostages but of course that's not how it played out um, when it turned out that there were a couple of double agents rogue agents and in the CIA and every time they would get clo- every time the locations of the hostages would be uncovered discovered um, and they would be close to moving in to grab them Somebody at the CIA was tipping off the Hezbollah folks, and they would suddenly be moved again. And so uh, Terry Terry Anderson was kept for three years. Uh, the, the the guy at C or more than that possibly the guy at CNN was was kept for three years, uh, the, and it was a terrible terrible conditions. Um, the the wife of the bureau chief at, at at CNN went to the hospitals and worked in the um, the Shatila refugee camp, trying to make peace with the people, trying to show sympathy for the people, anything that they could to get them out. William Buckley, who was the station chief for the CIA, was hideously tortured. He was kidnapped and uh, beaten to death with bricks, and they pulled out his fingernails. They, 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 they really beat this guy badly and finally killed him. And then they dumped his body at the front gates of the CIA office in, um, in Beirut, which was supposed to be classified. Okay, nobody was supposed to know where that was. And, and so, uh, but by dumping, it, by dumping Buckley's body 
at at the gates of at the, at the gates of the front door of the CIA station house, they were saying, "Look, we knew, he he broke. We broke him before he died." And it was it was it, it this was scary stuff. It it really was. So Lockerbie was actually um it, someone at the Defense Intelligence Agency, McKee, had found had had reported his belief that the CIA was 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 betraying the uh, the hostages by re- every time they they'd be found to to make a rescue to send in the Delta Force they'd be moved and so he said okay we've got a traitor on the CIA side so the FBI in Washington and the CIA in Washington sent out a team to Beirut to do an investigation and they were all coming back on. Pan Am 103 uh-huh. when the plane was bombed. Now, I will tell you even more than that, <clears throat> it's been reported that McKee got on not in Beirut but at a different location and his plane was was surprisingly diverted. His his travel plans were diverted from his original flight schedule and he was put on Pan Am 103 where everybody else was already there and then the plane uh, magically got bombed. So in other words this is not uh, these are not Libyan bombers this is a this is a wet team came in to to clean up. Yes it's a wet team cleanup yes absolutely and and then the plane went down over the roofs of Scotland. Uh, they, They have speculated that or they know they do know that there was a break-in at the London Heathrow Airport in the baggage area that same day there was a break-in and the the plane blew up over the roofs of Scotland and it was a, a, a detonated by a, a um, parabolic device that was set off to the, the height of the, the the airplane in the sky and and, uh, and why the decision to pin this on Gaddafi, basically. Well, originally they went after Syria, and they they correctly said homage. They knew exactly who did it. <laughs> they knew exactly who did it. The Stasi in Eastern Germany and East Berlin had been tracking Ahmed Briel and the 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 Palestinian Front Liberation Project and uh, the PFLP. And they correctly identified who did it. They they said this is these are the guys who did it. And during the first Iraq War, George Bush wanted Syria as an ally and wanted flyover rights so that they could get into Baghdad. And at that point, uh, <clears throat> Assad, uh, Hafez al-Assad said, "Well, you better take us off your terror list." And so at that point. President George Bush the first said, "Well, you're right. We'll do it." So they dumped it. They they transferred the whole blame onto Libya, which had been guilty of bombing U.S. forces at a, a targeting a, a discotheque in Germany. Right, right. And the the Berlin discotheque. And so they said, "Well, we'll, we'll we know we'll, we'll blame Gaddafi instead. And even if he didn't do this attack, we know he did the others." And so that this is, you know, but but McGrahi and FEMA had nothing to do with it. They were total patsies, nothing whatsoever. And and so just so I'm clear, then the the wet team they were using they were using Palestinian assets to to take care of this business, or I mean, who was ultimately responsible? 
Well, it, it was Palestinian uh, Syrian assets. Yes. A- acting at the, at, at Ahmed the- Jibril, Ahmed Jibril, Abu Nidal, Abu Talb, um, did it. There at- were eleven. 11 in all, and they were all Arabs and they were all guilty. But I will tell you that Abu Nidal went to his death stating that he'd done it. And he was, and, and, and this should be, this is very important because putting a bomb on an airplane is not an easy thing to do. Abu Nidal had done a dozen or more airplane bombings, airplane hijackings, and he was, I, I, I don't want to say brave or courageous that's not the right word no. but he was on there's not an if you call it honor among thieves he had the in, integrity I, again using the word integrity and Abu Nadal in the same sentences are, it kind of makes you vomit but but he had the integrity to say he not to blame somebody else for his crime he said I'm the one who did this but were they acting and, at the behest of, of elements within the CIA who wanted yes, yes that's okay yes. listen Susan they, we'll take a time out we'll come back and uh, we'll continue to delve into uh, the cover up uh, of 9-11 and of course all of the skullduggery involved uh, in Iraq with the sanctions and uh, and weapons of mass destruction and much more. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Susan Lindauer, and uh, the second edition of Extreme Prejudice is uh, now available at Amazon, and uh, where else can they get that, Susan? Uh, Amazon is the best place. And it is the second edition. What's what's new in the book? Oh, I... My my first my first version was uh, more. I, I think it had a little bit too much stream of consciousness. My my beloved companion had died four days or two days after the uh, court granted our my right to a hearing, and so I didn't have. I was I was pretty much on my own, and I took comments, helpful comments from readers, and and made some corrections. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. That's, that's all. But 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 here. But but I want to I want to finish with Lockerbie yes. because the only the, the reason that not the only reason but the, the the key reason of to talk about Lockerbie is to remember that false flags and there, there's tremendous political capital invested into these prosecutions and the Lockerbie was 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 a pre, a predecessor to 9/11 it really was uh, it was a CIA inside job which had the which had a purpose of protecting the CIA from exposure of its role in the heroin trafficking and it had nothing to do with Libya at all so it's it's worth noting that that Events like 9/11 have happened before in terrorism. That's why I. That's why it was. You know, it's it's important to talk about. Right now, um, you you all obviously have been um, you know talking about a great deal about writing a great deal about the the warnings that were coming in uh, to uh, the U.S. administration months in advance of this event. Where from which quarters were these warnings coming in? 
Well, I, I think what I'd like to do is tell you uh, how I learned about 9-11 because it's so important. Um, I learned about 9-11 from my CIA handler, Dr. Richard Fuse, in April of 2001. The Lockerbie trial had occurred in the year 2000, a year before. And during that period, during the trial, there was a lot of speculation in the in the intelligence community that the United States, that, that uh, the the U.S. failure and the U.S. and British failure to identify the real culprits of nine of the excuse me of the Lockerbie attack opened up the United States to a, a position of weakness. Did you understand that 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 it, it it made us look either afraid of the terrorists, the real terrorists, or stupid, incredibly stupid, and either of those would be a provocation that real terrorists would not be able to withstand. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Because, Interesting. Yes, because the, because every it, it, it after fighting so hard to attack Libya and attach blame for Lockerbie onto Libya, once the United States was forced to show its hand in the Lockerbie trial in the year 2000, they had no evidence. There was nothing nothing proved nothing nothing substantial at all it was just you know george bush making a declaration and signing a piece of paper had nothing to do with there was no there was nothing meanwhile there was a mountain of evidence showing that that ahmed jabril and the pacific the, the pacific front for liberation of palestine um the pflp had had been had been uh, guilty and that we were hiding from these terrorists was a provocation so that had been discussed for some time all through the Lockerbie trial was that this was a terrible mistake a year later my uh, in April of 2001 I received a phone con- call from my CIA handler Dr. Richard Fuse asking me to come in and he had a message he wanted me to deliver to a, the Iraqi embassy in New York and he wanted a cable to be sent to Baghdad so we uh, so I went over there and I, I, I that was my role. I'd been doing this for for since uh, I, I first contacted the Libyans in May of two of 1995. I contacted the Iraqis in August of 1996, and I'd been doing back channel work exactly like this. I I was very skilled at this. Uh, it was it was part. It was a the major focal point of my life and the diplomats knew that if I came and delivered a message that they should take it seriously so I went to Richard and he said Susan I need you to tell the diplomats that um, we are expecting a major terrorist attack involving airplanes and some kind of strike on the World Trade Center and we need you to tell Baghdad that if they discover any intelligence about this attack involving airplanes and the World Trade Center that we demand they hand that intelligence over to us and if we find out that they have kept anything away from us then we will um, and, and then it goes down we will consider that an act of war and we will pound them into harder than harder and more ferociously than than we've ever hit them before we'll bomb them back into the stone age literally a second this, time <laughs> a second time and and by this time we'd hit iraq so many times it would be difficult to to impress on them how we could make it worse than we'd already made it 
Right, right. And of course, um, Iraq at this time is living under these, you know, crippling sanctions as a result of, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the Gulf War. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that must have been, I mean, how was your message received when you went into that Iraqi embassy? Well, now, th- that is a very important question because uh, Iraq had always been one of our best sources on terrorism. Saddam recognized that this that anti-terrorism was one facet that he shared with Washington and he could show his devotion and contributions and his commitment to be a good neighbor. So, a year earlier in October 2000 during the right before the bombing of the USS Cole, I had received a message from the Iraqi embassy to come in because they had a message for me and they told me that they had uh, that they that there was a foreign national, a Saudi, planning to assassinate the Saudi royal members of the Saudi royal family, and that he had planned to uh, attack a port in Yemen. This is the bombing of the USS Cole, and the Iraqis protested they could only deport the man. They could not try him because under international law, given Iraq's pariah status, it would be politically impossible for Iraq to take any action against any foreign national uh, and much less put them in prison because of their, you know, it would just, even, even somebody trying to kill the Saudi royal family would still be protected and, and, and exalted by the West. So it was not possible to arrest these people, and so the. But they, but he told us told us that they'd gone to Yemen, and they were going to strike a U.S. ship in Yemen, and so I immediately went back to my reported that to the CIA and Defense Intelligence, and again what we see is the night of the bombing of the USS Cole, um, the uh, ship was the, the ship's orders were to stand down. Hmm. any protection of the ship they knew that it would have to be a a boat ramming it or that somebody was going to try to board it or ram it because there's only certain things you could do to a ship so they knew exactly what was going to happen but uh, the Iraqis had explained before the attack that the reason for this for what was going to become the USS Cole was that the, the group of terrorists wanted to relocate from Somalia, this is Al-Qaeda, Somalia, they wanted to cross the border and come into Yemen so that they could position themselves inside this scrabble-poor country and launch attacks on Saudi oil fields. Okay, this was a long-term agenda. They wanted to set up a base of operations. They hoped the Iraqis despised them for this. They despised them because they were willing to subject the, the, the impoverished Yemeni people to harsh United Nations sanctions. The, the, the Al-Qaeda, what we, what we now call Al-Qaeda, wanted to, uh, hoped that the Yemeni response would be incompetent, poorly conceived, and then the Americans would become angry and would slap sanctions on Yemen, and therefore that would isolate the Yemeni people and they would turn away from the central government and, re- and re- embrace the, ter- the, 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 the invading terrorists. It's a real chess use. game. My God, they're thinking like four or five, yes. six steps ahead. Yes, indeed. And I have to tell you that whenever I am terribly sorry about the war in Yemen, but I also know 
that that was the purpose of al-Qaeda, to get into into Yemen, and this is a long-term 20-year game, get into Yemen and attack the Saudi oil fields, destroy the Saudi wealth, take over the Saudi government. So in a, in a sense, I, I do see why, I understand very much why the Saudis have responded the way they have. But... My, my, but my point in telling you that attack was that the the again the United States understanding the because the United States understood the 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 goal the chessboard and how the map was laid out they decided that they would allow the attack to be carried out in a the soldier the 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 sailors were told to go have shore leave so they were sent off mo- many of them were sh- sent off the boat the USS Cole and then the the pro- the protections that would stop the anyone from striking the boat were removed okay there are protocols for that that stop uh, any little any smaller ship from even coming close to a US vessel those were all taken apart and then they let it happen they sent everybody offshore, off to off, you know, to to shore, and then let the attack happen, and then they they did it with the express intent that that they instead of asking for sanctions, they would demand the United States would demand to send soldiers and and military, the navy into Yemen to act as protections of the Saudis. So they would take they made a decision in advance of before the, the USS goal occurred on rapid turnaround. Uh, I learned about it on a Friday or excuse me, I, I take that back. I learned about it about 10 days before. I went back to New York, warned the Yemeni ambassador, on Friday night over dinner in New York, and the attack happened Wednesday night, Thursday morning. But we told the Yemeni ambassador exactly what we were going to want, that if the attack occurred, we wanted to send the U.S. Navy and have a military presence in Yemen to help to help the Yemeni government forestall any future attacks against the Saudi oil fields. That just doesn't make sense. Why not just stop it from happening in the first place? Because they had to get the bait. They, they had, ah, you say, wait a minute. Why did they do that? Because the attack had to occur in order to keep the pressure on Yemen to deliver on allowing the United States to set up a military base there. They had to have that. So they used the attack as a false flag, if you, uh, as a staged attack. I don't know if it's a false flag attack, it's a staged attack. They let it happen. They let it happen right. for the reason, for a reason which was to get the so so. Meanwhile, coming back to the Iraqis, before 9/11, the Iraqis had told us about this, and they had protested that they they knew the man wanted to that these the the conspirators desired to assassinate the Saudi royal family. They understood that the that the conspirators wanted to set up a base in Yemen to attack Saudi oil fields and they said you know if this was anyone if we were any other nation we could make arrests and we could send these people to prison and hand them over to the Saudi government but considering that we are such pariahs we are prohibited from taking those basic actions and that was Iraq's response as to why they they could only deport them and tell us where they went and so the CIA came back before 9-11, this becomes very, very, very important. In response to the USS Cole, the CIA comes back and says, okay, we, we understand why you did that, 
But we demand to send an FBI task force or Scotland Yard or Interpol task force into Baghdad, preferably FBI. They wanted U.S. control over it. But Scotland Yard, too, for British, British U.S., control and they wanted to they told the Iraqis they wanted to have a, a terrorism task force which would have authorization to conduct investigations in in interview witnesses and make arrests without Baghdad's interference and so in February of 2001 the deputy foreign minister Saeed Hassan who had been who had previously been a friend of mine at the Iraqi embassy in New York at, at when he was ambassador to the Iraq, for the Iraqi government Iraq's ambassador to the United Nations he agreed in February of 2001 that the FBI should be allowed to send a terrorism task force because of the USS Cole so in April when I go to them and I say hey uh, we've heard about this terrorism attack in New York and we'd like your help. The Iraqis were very polite. They said, okay, that's great. Uh, we'll cable Baghdad that you're seeking any intelligence on this. And uh, you want to send in the FBI? Go right ahead. Okay, I'm we'll- going to jump in right here, Susan. We have to take another time out. We'll okay, come back on sorry. the other side. No worries. Susan Landauer is, uh, Susan Lindauer is with us. And uh, we will be right back on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Susan Lindauer, author of Extreme Prejudice. All right, so the the Iraqis were more than willing to cooperate um, in terms of allowing the FBI, the CIA into their country. They weren't in a position to to arrest terrorist suspects, so they were they welcomed the FBI and the CIA, CIA to come in and do that. This is in April in, of two thousand and one, and you're receiving. Uh, warnings of a terrorist attack coming to New York involving planes and the World Trade Center Tower. Exactly. And Iraq's response is very cordial. They'll send a notice to Baghdad. So then I go back to my CIA handler and I report back what the Iraqis promised to do. And he said, well, what happened when you threatened them? I said, oh, well, Richard, I threats are not necessary. Iraq's one of our best sources on terrorism. I told them what's going on and we need the intelligence. They promised to send the cable to Baghdad. They'll get us, if they hear of anything, they'll let us know. They know it's a top priority. He said, I did not tell you to, to be nice to those people. I want. I told you to deliver a threat. I demand that you go right back to New York and you deliver the message exactly as I told you. Oh, you, you tell- didn't promise to... Th- bomb them into the Stone Age if they didn't cooperate. No, not yet I didn't. <laughs> it was not necessary. So he was really mad at me. And and he said, I want you to go back there and I want you to tell him exactly what I told you before. We are going to, we will consider this an act of war if they discover any intelligence and refuse to, and fail to give it to us. They'd better, they'd better find this intelligence. And I And he said, and then he said something very important. He said, I do not 
Richard Fuse said, I do not want you to tell the Iraqis that this threat originates with you or I. I want you to tell them this threat of war originates above the CIA director and above the Secretary of State. Now, Richard, those are only three people. Mm-hmm. The President of the United States, George Bush, Vice President Richard Cheney, and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. And those are the three people who had the authority, and, 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 and my CIA handler was emphatic that they wanted to make sure the Iraqis understood the threat of war for over this this future attack on the World Trade Center involving airplanes originated with those three men. So I went right back to New York and I said, I you know, gosh, you know, I I, I guess I didn't speak strongly enough before. I'm very chagrined. I have to I have to I've been ordered to repeat this message with this threat. And the diplomat was like Oh my goodness! Well, you know, I, I, oh, I'll tell Baghdad immediately that this is actually very serious. And and he said, uh, Baghdad has already invited the FBI to send a terrorism task force. Please tell, go back to Washington immediately and tell them that I'm ready. That ba- that we at the embassy are ready to process the FBI visas. In- immediately and promptly and that I will have authorization to handle this here in New York. He said, I will I will inform my staff that if I am at any meetings this any time this week, uh, they are to interrupt my meetings no matter where I am and I will come I will be here and I will return immediately forthwith to the embassy with no delays whatsoever. And we will process these visas so that the FBI can go straight in. I can just imagine Dick Cheney saying, these damn compliant Iraqis, don't they know we're trying to pick a fight with them? Yes, yes. It's awful. It's awful. Yes, the damn compliant Iraqis. Yes. And that was the story. That was what the, the, the ultimate tragedy of this whole thing. So, of course, I went back and, and I and Richard said, what's what did they say to my threat? I said, oh, send in the FBI immediately. Tell the FBI they've got a, they've got they've got a green light. Well, do you think for a minute the FBI showed up at the embassy? No. Instead, all through the summer, we played this little dance. Have the Iraqis heard anything yet? The Iraqis said, no, everything that is coming about this attack comes from you. We don't know of any, all, you know, any time we try to chase down a source on anything, it all goes back to Washington. You are the, you being the CIA, the C, Washington and the CIA are the source of all the terrorism talk. It's all your chatter. They didn't want to hear that. <laughs> They didn't want to hear that. Well, but but the thing is, it was true. It was true. So we play. It was a game that we were playing. It was it was it was a game. And um, after the break, I will be happy to tell you what happened on August second, and that was the day of Robert Mueller. This this becomes in uh, accelerates the, the 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 terrorism talk accelerates in August. All right. So, right back with Susan Lindauer as we talk about uh, the 9/11 cover-up right here on The Conspiracy Show. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Susan Lindauer is with us, a former U.S. intelligence asset and the author of Extreme Prejudice. All right, so the, the strange dance going on through the summer of 2001, uh, where the, uh, the, uh, the U.S. is demanding the Iraq turnover information relating to a possible terrorist attack. The Iraqis say, we have none. All of the chatter leads directly back to Washington. Uh, so, I mean, Iraq, they must, in Baghdad, must be scratching their, their heads saying, what the heck do they want from us? Well, exactly at that moment, the, the, the greatest tragedy of all was unfolding, I think, in my opinion. The, uh, the world had discovered that over 1.5 million to 2 million Iraqi people had died from the sanctions, including over 1 million children under the age of five. There's been a lot of talk to try to lower those figures and try to, you know, snuff down those figures, but the figures of death were horrific. The entire planet was up in arms against the sanctions and Iraq was moving quickly to uh, accept the return of weapons inspectors and trying to appease Washington offering all sorts of concessions that were coming through my back channel I just as I'd done the Lockerbie talks with Libyan diplomats and senior ambassadors so I was also doing the talks on the weapons inspections people don't re- realize that I am the one who did those talks with Iraq's ambassador, senior diplomats, and foreign ministry. So uh, at this point, they were offering the United States every possible concession. They offered preferential uh, contracts for telecommunications, agriculture, transportation. The Iraqis offered to purchase one million American manufactured automobiles every year for 10 years. I laughed. They said, we'll make it 20 years. And I said, no, no, 10 years is enough. There would have been no automobile bailout of Detroit if this had happened. Didn't they also um, promise to, 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 for free elections and for Hussein to resign? Yes, free elections. And Hussein would step down and retire to a villa in Tikrit. The Iraqi exiles were, the, the Iraqis were very creative. Saddam's government was very creative. They said that they pointed out that embassies are sovereign territory of the home country. They invited the Iraqi exiles to return and live at the embassies, which could then reopen in Baghdad, and they could be housed, they could house the Iraqi exiles who would be allowed to campaign around the country, publish uh, newspaper articles, radio, TV, you know, they'd have media access. And the world would go forward, Saddam would retire to a villa in Tikrit, yes indeed. Why would he be willing to do that? Because he was a survivalist. And he was at the end of his, his, his life, and he was just, he was ready. He was ready to go. It's like, why attack Libya when Gaddafi was about to step down? There's right. no reason to attack Libya After at all. he had reformed himself. Yes, so- he'd re- and he was also about to retire. He was expected to retire in the next 12 to 18 months, 
prior to the attack on Libya. So there was no reason to have a regime change at all. Saddam was going to go willingly, peacefully, and, and step aside. And then he was going to open the way for the exiles. Also, the United States would have, was promised preferential contracts for health care, hospital equipment, and pharmaceuticals, and the all-important oil. The United States was promised preferential contracts for oil development and exploration, and um, that the United States would be given the contracts to rebuild Iraq's pumping stations and the damaged pipelines. Uh, The sanctions had caused, shutting off the pipelines, not using the pipelines, had caused them to rust out. So they they were leaking heavily into the desert and they were not they were not the 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 oil was 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 in a the, the oil infrastructure was badly damaged they said we will give the united states full contracts to rebuild everything all the oil infrastructure of our country so the, this would have been peace was a big kaching 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 it was it, you would have had a a profit margin on the peace victory that would have been you no no automobile bailout in Detroit, economic profits for the whole world. It, it would have peace would have been very significant, and all of this is going on throughout the summer before 9/11. So 9/11, the 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 peoples of the world, the governments of the world hated the sanctions. Everybody wanted it to change. The Iraqis had seen the world's change of heart, and they were aggressively moving to get to negotiate a settlement within Washington, realizing that at that point, it would, Washington was the one holdout that they had to win over. And these and sanctions so were, go back to Poppy Bush and then also through the Clinton years and into George W. Bush, uh, correct? Yes, yes. I mean, in total, how many years were those crippling sanctions in place? They started in the year uh, 1990, and they continued until 2003, 13 years. My word. Yes. And how many Iraqi children dead as a result? Uh, In 1990, January of 1996, the uh, World Health Organization released figures that 500,000 children had died of sanctions by 1996. And Madeleine Albright, who was Secretary of State, was asked if she thought that was an acceptable rate of death. And she said, yes, absolutely. And just explain the prob- how, how the one... Problems, yeah. The problem was is that the children did not stop dying in 1996. The deaths continued until 2003, seven more years. So it's estimated that over one million children died from the sanctions, and that's and that only counted children five and under, and it only counted adults over the age of 65. So the children were dying, the old people were dying. Uh, cancer was an epidemic like the flu in Iraq because of the depleted uranium as well. Right, right. And when we say death by sanction, we're talking about lack of proper food, lack of medical yes. supplies and so forth. Horrifying. They, I, I visited hospitals in Baghdad and they opened the medical cabinets in the hospitals and there was no medicine. They did not have aspirin to give a little child who was dying or suffering. They did not have oxygen canisters. They did not have... They, they had to use uh, hypodermic needles over and over and over again and sterilize them 
rather because they they couldn't throw anything away. Every you know, they had to go to the black market to buy medicines uh, in northern Iraq. In the Kurdish territories, they would go up there to get medicines if they needed something. Well, Iraq it was, was it Iraq was, was a Iraq was a client state. What? Where did Saddam Hussein? How did he rub George Herbert Walker Bush the wrong way? Were they business partners? Did he did did he somehow betray Bush? What happened? You know, I, I have to tell you that I've had so many contact con conversations with the Iraqi diplomats on that very subject and nobody ever could understand it. They were like, he was our friend. Dick Cheney was our friend. And they would show me pictures, photographs of Saddam shaking hands with Dick Cheney, big, huge smiles on their faces. Um, The Saudis hated the Iraqis and the Saudis have violently, they, they saw Iraq as a secular government they have their evil I, I think the Saudis are the most evil people frankly I have a deep hate a personal deep hatred of the Saudis uh, they they have attacked for the regime for the regime for not the regime for, yes, for yes, the regime yes. for the regime yes excuse me I, I stand corrected it's the regime um, they attack other countries just like we've seen them do in Libya and Syria for no reason whatsoever there was you know that was a Saudi war the United States was and NATO were proxies for the Saudis, but the the war in Syria again proxies for the Saudis, and this is just this is just an evil, selfish, ugly uh, government that I, I, ideology that they have the right to slaughter other people. They're very spoiled and self indulgent people. They treat other human beings hideously. Yes. I, I really don't like the Saudi. I, <laughs> you can tell. I just really don't like the Saudi. So so yes, Iraq was this secular country. It was a bulwark against terrorism. But I mean Hussein and was a bulwark a, against Iran. Yes, I mean yes. I, you know, I realize that a lot of people today uh like Iran or they they realize that we should stop declaring wars on other countries whether you like Iran or not is is irrelevant the question is do we have the right to destroy Iran on a whimsy because we don't like them and whether you like Iran or not and you know I I am I I believe strongly that we need to leave those people alone so well, I think I think those people uh, are are itching for regime change themselves, and uh, maybe with a little encouragement, but, it'll but happen. But be, they'll they'll but decide. They'll, they'll decide. Do that themselves. Yes, they, they, they will. have to do their own regime change. Yes, the United States cannot be the the fulcrum for regime change throughout the world, and no. we if we're paying a a, a much deserved price. A height where we're paying for this, and we deserve to pay the price for this. But the point um, is, again, Iraq was a client state that could still be uh, an ally. They uh, wanted, and they yes, tried very yes. hard to get back in good graces. So let me tell you what happened in, on August 2nd, because I want to tie this back now to 9-11. August 2nd was a critical day in my life. That was the day the Senate confirmed Robert, the Senate held nomination hearings for Robert Mueller to head the FBI. And on that day, I was a a consultant at a little company down here in Silver Spring. I was speaking with my CIA handler and I said, oh, 
Robert Mueller. Yuck, yuck, awful, awful. Um, there is no terrorism investigation that that man has not thrown. And I said, I think he's a terrible choice to be the director of the FBI. And and Richard said, really, which ones do you think? And I said, well, look at Oklahoma City. It was Robert Mueller who insisted Timothy McVeigh did this alone. And we all know that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols had ties to the Philippines and to the Islamic community, uh, which Abu Sayyaf and uh, Ramzi Youssef from the 1993 World Trade Center attack had taken up base in, had make had, had taken up sanctuary in in Manila or, or not in Manila but it was it was a, in the Philippines he was there and uh, you know it's it's preposterous to think that these people didn't contribute to the Oklahoma City bombing and he said that's right and he said my god what's going to happen though if there's no FBI director when this next attack occurs. I said, you mean the attack on the World Trade Center? So he said, absolutely. He said, I expect that this, uh, we, 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 are, we expect this attack is imminent. And I said, you mean like in the next few weeks? And he said, absolutely, it's coming, it's right here. And, I, and he said, we know it's coming, we know it's imminent. And I said, well, Richard, I had better go back to New York and talk to the Iraqis one last time and see if they've got any messages from Baghdad. I will go and ask them if they've heard anything at all. Uh, I've been pushing them all summer long and they keep telling me they've got nothing, but I'll just try one last time. And he said, Susan, I do not want you going to New York. And I said, Richard, I have to go. We ha- you know, God forbid that they get a message from Baghdad and I haven't gone up to see them and they can't get it to me. And so I said, I'll, I'll go. And he said, go up right now and then do not go back again until after this attack is over. We are expecting mass casualties. Now, we had already talked through the summer that the way the attack would be structured would be airplane hijackings after April, May, when it was kind of vague. Throughout the summer, we talked about airplane hijackings and a strike on the World Trade Center using some sort of miniature thermonuclear device. We expected the towers to be destroyed and obliterated in the attack, and it would have to involve a nuclear bomb, but not a not a not a Hiroshima bomb, but a miniature device. And my defense intelligence handler and I spoke frequently about where we thought they'd get it, and how, in fact, that any anybody with a, with the proper ID could drive onto a military base, to an armory. And take off, you know, and drive off with a, uh, a, a, you know, waltz in, grab a bomb, and, and get out the door. That it wouldn't would not be very difficult to do that at all. And so we were, you know, we talked about which armories were close to New York, how many day, you know, how many hours it would take, how many, how many, how many armories were in a day's drive of New York City um, to, to get it there, and 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 you know that we that they really ought to put out an alert on those bases to protect their mili- their 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 nuclear supplies. Wait a minute, but you must be thinking at this point, Susan. Wait a minute, I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends, uh, vis-a-vis the USS Corps. I mean, so are you not thinking, wait a minute, they're, they're going to do it again. They're going to let it happen. Yes, yes, that is, yes. And so we're fighting, so we were fighting to stop it. And we kept running into resistance. All the things that would have easily prevented it, for example, 
let me tell you the op- most obvious would be putting a um uh oh what do you call it um an anti-aircraft artillery battery on top of one of the towers they could have shot the darn plane flying over the water you got that right listen we'll uh, that take it easy we'll take a time out this concludes hour one susan lindauer with us for the entire two hours stay tuned you're listening to an exclusive podcast of the conspiracy show with richard serrett Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Susan Lindauer, former U.S. intelligence asset, is here. She is the author of Extreme Prejudice. Lindauer also revealed how the Iraqi government attempted to work with the United States prior to the war in 2003, and she claimed that Iraq was desperate to end the sanctions imposed on the nation, and therefore they not only offered to allow extensive weapons inspections, but also preferential treatment to American health care and automotive companies once trade with the country had resumed. Additionally, Lindauer said a senior Iraqi official suggested that Hussein would retire from power and free elections would be held to choose the nation's next leader. Despite all of these concessions, she contended, the United States pushed ahead with a war because it wanted companies associated with senior administration officials to profit from the conflict and would and it would also allow George W. Bush to satisfy his own personal vendetta against Iraq and Saddam Hussein. When you say we were desperately trying to stop this, um, I mean, did you on on August? August 2nd, let me tell you what happens in the month of August, because there's a lot of action on the, on the part of my team. First of all, on August 2nd, that was the date of Robert Mueller's Senate confirmation hearings. And when I released my book, Extreme Prejudice, I started giving, I gave a, a pre-release book tour in Japan. And for the first time, I told the story about Robert Mueller's hearings. When I came home from Japan, I found a copy of the of the Wall Street Journal from dated July 30th, 2001, and it was pinned under a rock quartz crystal uh, paperweight on the desk right next to my computer. Somebody had been into my house and delivered that newspaper. That was what we would call in, in intelligence a proof of life. Kind of, uh, if if you're if you're, it, it was from the it was not from my house. It was from the office where I had been a consultant, and it meant that somebody had gone over to that office the week of July thirtieth when and they had after my August second tantrum, and they had gone into that office looking through my desk looking for any notes that I might have jotted down, seeking any intelligence that my team had acquired on that attack regarding what would later become the 9-11 attack. But it had happened in real time at the point of my conversation with Richard Fuse. So somebody else was looking for the 9-11 attack too, which I think is very important. I hope, I hope that comes across. On August 4th, the August 2nd was a Thursday, 
August 4th was a Saturday. That was the day that I went up to New York. I went up to the diplomats. I said, is there anything you've got? They said, no, we don't have anything. Uh, on August 6th, I had a meeting with my CIA handler at his office in uh Great Falls, Virginia, a stone's throw from the CIA. And I said, you know, the Rockies don't have anything, but what are we going to do? We have to take action. So we decided that I would do two things, two very important things. On Tuesday, August 7th, I phoned the office of Attorney General John Ashcroft. I had been given a telephone number that was only supposed to be used in the event that I could not reach my CIA or defense intelligence handler if I had discovered evidence of a terrorist attack that must be reported immediately and I could not do it through, through my own channels. So as a backup, I had a telephone number that I was told would go straight to the attorney general's office and that whoever was picking up the telephone would have the capability to look across the room and lay eyes on the attorney general. That's how it was put to me. That the person you're speaking to who, who has this number will be able to lay eyes on the attorney general and they have the capability to mobilize in a heartbeat if you have terrorism attack, information about terrorism attack. And were, you, were you encouraged to do this by Richard Fuse? Yes, okay. and it was the first and only time that I ever used that phone number. It was only for an emergency like this, but we invoked that that, that phone number for the 9-11 attack on August 7th, which was Tuesday. Right, that's important. Okay, very important. And I told them, I am the CIA and defense intelligence handler uh, asset covering the Iraq and Libya at the United Nations. I also do terrorism invo anti-terrorism involving Yemen, Syria, Hezbollah, Egypt, and Malaysia. And I have received warnings that we are seeking we need we are seeking any fragment of intelligence involving airplane hijackings and a strike on the World Trade Center as a known target. We expect a miniature thermonuclear device to be used and that the towers shall be destroyed entirely. Okay. We expect mass casualties. I've got to jump in here and ask okay, you something, sorry. Susan, because uh, when you were talking originally uh, to the Iraqi embassy, and they were saying, wait a minute, the only chatter we hear leads back to Washington. Yes. So all of this information that you're getting of all of these threats, where are they supposed to be coming from? Where is this? Is this all leading back to Washington? Are you living in an echo chamber at this point? Pretty much it's an echo chamber. And in fact, I'm told that, that when I hung up the phone and my the, the person I was speaking with spoke with John Ashcroft. John Ashcroft is reported to have said, oh, that's the CIA. They keep talking about this attack. Ignore it. But by but the person who did, so that was John Ashcroft's response to me. And that's been reported in the New York Times and the Washington Post that when John Ashcroft heard about it, he said, ah, pay, don't pay any attention to it. That was my warning on August 7th. But before the person hung up the phone, the person when I, when I called the, the attorney general's office, that person said, Susan, 
Call the this they gave me a phone number at the Office of Counterterrorism at the Justice Department. They said, repeat exactly what you just told me to that in, in person. I will tell the, the Attorney General and you repeat your story to this person over here. And I said, what we're seeking is an again, an emergency broadcast alert through all agencies seeking any fragment of intelligence involving airplane hijackings and a strike on the World Trade Center as a known target. We expect the use of a miniature thermonuclear device to be used. We we if if you have any if there's anything you have it needs to be reported immediately back to Attorney General John Ashcroft. So what happens is this goes out, the, even though Ashcroft is a dumb blankety blank, the Office of Counterterrorism took action. They reported it. They, they did put out an emergency broadcast alert. And Colleen Rowley in Minneapolis and all of those that crowd in Minneapolis responded and they fed it back when they had the Mosawi case, when Mosawi had come in from Canada into Minneapolis, they picked up on it. Now, Colleen Rowley has not immediately told everybody that it was that that it was at the request of the intelligence community that the FBI should respond, but it was. And so exactly at this point, they did respond with news about Mosawi, and he was the, quote, 19th hijacker who was taken into custody in Minneapolis. Okay. Right. So, so we have. So it did get. So again, you have good guys who are trying to stop the attack and doing everything right, and then you have these dumb idiot people like John Ashcroft, <laughs> who, frankly, really another another sycophant position who should never have been attorney general at all. Um, tra- tragic for tragic for America, who does nothing. They they try. They, the um, uh, Minneapolis requested to open Musawi's computer. They wanted to open his email, his his community, his his communications, and wanted to get a FISA warrant on him. And Ashcroft, dumb idiot that he was, said no. Ashcroft refused. Well, is he being dumb or is he being told to look the other way? Is being ordered to look the other way? Yes. Yes. So you have good people who are trying to stop it. And then you have... I'm trying not to use very harsh language right now. (laughs) Who are doing everything in their power to make sure that nothing interrupts the attack. Yes. Well, at a certain point, are you saying to yourself, "Wait a minute"? You know, obviously, this is this is a uh, a false flag, or someone is going to let it happen. They know about it. They're- well, I I I took th- this was not the end of of my actions. Uh, after calling the Office of Counterterrorism and the Office of Attorney General John Ashcroft, I also my cousin was the chief of staff to George Bush, Andrew Card. And- Andrew Card. He is the man who leaned down and whispered into George Bush's ear when he was reading the book to the children. On the, the Billy the goat, goat, yes. The yes. Billy Goat. And he's reading a book to the children, and Andrew, that's my cousin who leans down and whispers in his ear. I, I waited in my car outside Andrew Card's house in Arlington, Virginia, for more than two hours 
chain smoking cigarettes and I just I just waited for him to come home um, unfortunately he after two hours I left um, I at the time I considered that it might be the greatest mistake of my entire life that I was going to miss him and that he was not going to hear what I had to say but I, I did try to, to get a message to him to anyone in, in that in his family um, that that what was going on and um, uh, the other thing that happens and I've learned about this from a State Department employee who was afraid of losing his pension whose wife worked at the NSA and both of them were afraid of losing their pensions but he told me that that parking that security cameras in the parking garage of the World Trade Center I don't know which tower the parking parking garage of the World Trade Center had picked up the arrival of strange vans at about three o'clock in the morning for about ten nights in a row, from about September twentieth till about uh, excuse me excuse me August twenty sorry August twentieth twenty third until about September third. There were strange vans seen entering the World Trade Center after the janitorial trucks had left. Uh, the, carp- the guys who come in to clean the carpet and dust and do all that stuff. After they left at about 2.30, these strange vans were arriving. Four to five of them every night. Not one. Four to five of these trucks were arriving. And they were loading or unloading something at the World Trade Center. And they had never been there before. And after uh, um, September second or September third, they were never they never came back again. So uh, this has always been problematic for me because, uh, I mean, I, I certainly believe aspects of of nine eleven w- w- were an inside job. Someone had to know whether they made it happen, let it happen. Certainly, certain elements were glad it happened, but. Uh, and, and it's become almost a religion, this whole idea of, of controlled demolition and so forth. And I mean, how do you, if that was controlled demolition, how do you wire a building that's 110 stories? I mean, the, the amount of cable the wiring, uh, if that's how they did it. Elevator I mean, shafts. Elevator shafts. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Elevator shafts. Um, and I don't know how long it would take to do that. I, I, I don't know how, how I mean, the, the, what, the question you've just asked is, is a worthy one that uh, we know that there were there was work on the elevator shafts for for a period of time for several months. Yeah, they had an asbestos problem, I believe, didn't they? Yes. Yes, they did. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer. I do know that that they that it has to have been a controlled demolition, though, because of the the pancake design of the of the the collapse of the buildings right. in ten seconds. It just it just this is not a bomb that explodes and breaks up a few of the girders and then the, then it, it it came down in ten seconds in a straight in a straight line. No, that tr- that 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 is true. Uh, and then the fires, excuse me, fires in the basement continued to burn until December. And people don't realize that the fires continued to burn at molten steel levels, rivulets of of steel running through like pools, puddles of 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 molten steel uh, and fire 
burning through December. All right, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll pick it up on the other side with Susan Lindauer, the author of Extreme Prejudice, right here on The Conspiracy Show. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Susan Lindauer stays with us for the full two hours here on this special edition of The Conspiracy Show as we commemorate the 17th anniversary of 9-11. She's a former U.S. intelligence asset. Uh, so when, when those buildings went down, where, where were you? Did you know anyone inside? I did not know anyone inside, but apparently the, the, the uh, <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. Can, can, can you just cut this out? Yeah, cut yeah, this out a little. Yeah. Okay. Just, there, there's a couple of things I, okay. Um, the CIA could have covered up the advance warnings about nine 11, except that I told civilians who I knew about the attack and our expectations the atta- of exactly how it was going to go. I told my brother about the attack, and I also told my best friend, Park Godfrey, who would later become a university professor at York University in Toronto, Canada, ah. a computer scientist uh, professional. And I told him, he testified in federal court at the Southern District of New York Courthouse on Pearl Street, which is about 1,000 yards from where the World Trade Center used to stand. He testified that I told him about the 9-11 attack in the spring and summer of 2001, and that throughout the summer, I told him that the attack would occur at the end of August or early September, In August, I told him the attack was imminent and that his family should stay out of New York City until after the attack was over because we were expecting mass casualties. And I will tell you, this he gave this testimony at a competency hearing for me after I was indicted on the Patriot Act. Yes, we have to get into that. silence, and we'll come to that in the next segment. Uh, But I... Uh, he, he testified in open court, very courageous thing to do to tell the truth in those circumstances. It has to have been unnerving for him. He's a very shy man, but he, st- he st- stood by the truth. He said, Susan knew about the World Trade Center attack. She told us about it. She, and, and he said that he told the FBI about, the, the, about my 9-11 warnings in um, – uh, 2004 in about May of 2004 so the entire time that the FBI was prosecuting me and harassing me and threatening me they knew that I had told the truth about 9-11 they, they always knew and my CIA handler told them about the 9-11 warnings my defense intelligence handler Paul Hoven told them about the 9-11 warnings and so the everyone was everyone was aware that I could had the capability to prove it in a court of law through independent testimony were you ever clear as to where the warnings were coming from no no, I was just told by the CIA that they were coming. All right. And and yeah. how did you react when when Susan Rice said that we had no way of knowing that they would use planes as weapons to fly into buildings? 
garbage. Ramsey Youssef had talked about this in, in 1994-95. They actually found a, ma- a blueprint for the 9-11 attacks. Uh, he wanted to have 11 airplane attacks on famous targets, including the World Trade Center, the White House, the Pentagon. And he, d- he mapped this out in 1995 prior to his arrest. All right. So we have uh, about 10 minutes here. Let's let's talk about your arrest under the Patriot Act. You were the first non-Arab in the United States uh, to be charged this, this, under the Patriot I was, Act. I was the second non-Arab American ever indicted on the Patriot Act after Jose Padilla. Ah, okay. And I am the only American who is free on the Patriot Act because the garb- the accusations were completely garbage, and I fought like I've never fought anything in my life to clear my name. You were charged with being an Iraqi spy, weren't you? Uh, an Iraqi agent, and I uh, they they Ahmed Shalabi took his revenge on me by forging a couple of very stupid little documents. I mean, these were receipts for. You, you'd think they'd be like, you know, millions of dollars or something. One of the receipts was for $100. I'm not even making this up. Another receipt was for $150. And I, I was just like, this is stupefying. You've got to be kidding. You should explain How- who Chalabi was. Ahmed Chalabi was a source of most of the pre of the fake pre-war intelligence claiming that that Iraq, that Baghdad possessed weapons of mass destruction. The yellow cake story, the um, the, the, the 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 mobile uh, weapons laboratories mounted on trucks that were driving around the desert so that they, they couldn't be tracked by the West. All of this came from Ahmed Chalabi. He was a crook. He had embezzled. Millions and millions of dollars from uh, an Iraqi bank, and was considered a, 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 a wanted felon in in Iraq, and he just just he just destroyed the country out of sheer malicious spite. He was a truly evil, evil man, and he, but his forgeries were were. Uh, the, the, let's put it this way we used to say the devil's in the details the, he had beautiful penmanship we used to say that Ahmed Shalabi had beautiful penmanship but the devil was in the details for example my the, 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 the receipt that they have on from me looks exactly like my handwriting but the diplomat's name is spelled wrong he left the country in March so he was not in the United States in December when he allegedly gave me $100 for train fare, which is actually not the right amount for train fare. That's not what train fare costs. Mm. So, and and then I had uh, emails to diplomats in Malaysia, in New York at the United Nations Security Council, which said that I could not meet in New York in that period of time at all because I had business down in Washington. So. I had I was covered, you know, four or five different ways, and I could debunk it as a forgery, but can, but because it was Iraq and 9/11, and because of the politics involved, once they put the indictment on me, they refused to let it go until five days before President Obama's inauguration. So it continued from March 2004 until January of 2009. And Obama said, I don't want anything to do with this. They refused to give me a trial. 
So I was locked up on Carswell Air Force Base and accused of incompetence. They said, and this was this was the message they wanted to send about Iraqi pre-war intelligence and 9/11 to begin with, and that was to say, don't blame Congress for this horrible mistake. Blame the intelligence community because of their incompetence. So I had to listen to these you know, talk show hosts from inside prison. Now imagine this. I am locked up inside prison watching these comedians excoriate the intelligence community, watching the Congress and the, the everybody on earth. Everybody's like, you dumb fools, what have you done? And here I am locked up in prison and I'm kept incommunicado. Well, what happened to me is even gets even more ugly, and I've got to tell you this story. I, I was locked up uh, in an ambush. After my arrest in March of 2004, the Pentagon denounced DOJ immediately. They gave my boyfriend a job at the Pentagon. He was living with me. A job at the Pentagon, a top secret security clearance, and a, a salary just under six figures so that they could, you know, keep food on the table while this stuff was going on. And they would send messages home saying, we're so sorry. Oh, my God, this is terrible. We're opposing what we we oppose what they're doing to Susie. We know that she's innocent. We know what's happening. Please tell her that we're so sorry. We don't want to participate in this at all. They're making us do this to her. So I had the Pentagon apologizing to me. But Colin Powell, who was the Secretary of State, I was free on bail on a $500,000 bail, living my life, going on with my life. And Colin Powell on September 8th, 2005, gave an interview to Barbara Walters on 2020. And he declared that he blamed the intelligence community, the mid-level folks who failed to warn him that Ahmed Chalabi was, and all of his Iraqi exiles were falsifying evidence and testimonials against on weapons of mass destruction. The problem was that it was a lie. I personally had gone to Colin Powell twice before his big speech at the United Nations. And remember remember how Colin Powell gave that 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 infamous address outlining the making the case that Iraq had all these these nonsense weapons and, and he none didn't, of it is he, true. Well, he didn't, he didn't even look like he, he believed it as he was delivering it. Obviously, he didn't believe it, but he was, you know, he had to deliver that speech. Well, they ordered him to, but then, but then on September 8th, 2005, he decided he would get out of it. He would rewrite, he would wash the blood and guts and dirt off his uniform and his place in history. So he said, well, no one told me that it was a lie. That was not true. I did. And I had been arrested for it. That was the one thing that I was accused of doing in my indictment was that I had delivered a report in January of 2003. And, okay, so on September 8th, Colin Powell gives that, that television interview with Barbara Walters. September 17th, nine days later, the Justice Department rubber stamps an order that I am not competent to stand trial. Therefore, I am no longer allowed to have a trial that will repudiate what Colin Powell has just said and expose what a liar he really is. On September 23rd, 15 days after that interview, I am summoned into court and ambushed 
I am told that I must surrender to prison on Carswell Air Force Base. And if I fire my attorney or if I demand a hearing to challenge the finding of incompetence, then I'm, I will forfeit my bail from this hour forward until the end of the proceedings. So, other, so if I want to keep my bail, then I will be given 10 days to get my affairs in order, and then I must surrender to prison in 10 days on Carswell Air Force Base, where I would be held for, originally it was supposed to be four months, and I will be held for four months and then released from prison. And after the after I've served the prison time, then I can ex- request a hearing to challenge the finding of non-competence. Okay. Then, hold on. Once I get into prison, however, they realized that their troubles, that, that it was just so such a preposterous thing. They invented a story that I was a religious maniac, that I was, you know, this goofy little Chiquita. And they realized that as soon as I opened my mouth, their their whole story of Iraq and 9-11 was going to go out the window. So they decided they would try to keep me locked up. And in violation of all federal laws, they asked if I could be detained for up to 10 years with no right to a trial or hearing in case I was telling the truth. I would not be allowed to call any witnesses to challenge the finding of incompetence, which is a direct violation of the statute. And I would be forced to be, I would be forcibly drugged, forcibly drugged with Haldol, Ativan, and Prozac, such that I would become chemically lobotomized. Who is your lawyer? I ha- oh, terrible, terrible, terrible. We called him Sam No Talkin'. His name was Sam Talkin'. And, and, and I, we called him Sam No Talkin'. Mm. <laughs> but my uncle, who was my hero in all of this, drove down to Texas from Illinois 700 miles in each direction. And he didn't even want to have the phone on. He didn't want to have anybody calling him. He said he needed just to think. He wanted to drive and think how in the heck he was going to get me out of here. And so he would drive down, and the first time he drove down, they refused to let him see me. They said that there was no military, there was no ba- no prison on the military base. They just said, there's no prison, there's no prison here, you're wrong, go away. And he said, well, yes, there is. My my niece is here, and, and I, I'm an attorney, and here are my legal papers. I can show my bona fides as her attorney, and here's the case, and here's the court order that she's been detained here, and yes, there's a prison here. He said, no, there isn't. Go away. It's like and a gulag. Said, it's like the Soviet Union. We have to take a time out, Susan. Stay oh, put. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Susan Lindauer. The book is Extreme Prejudice, the second edition, now available at Amazon.com. So you're at Carswell Army Base. Uh, your uncle, who is a, a lawyer, is trying to... to c- 
to get in to see you, and they deny that there's a prison there, even though he has a copy of the court order. It's just like the rule of law has completely gone out the window. You're being it held without a trial. Kafkaesque. Kafkaesque. And they can do this to anybody. Well, this is no, this is because of the Patriot Act. Uh, and that's worth remembering that I had been indicted on the Patriot Act. So the first time that he arrives, they say there's no prison there. And then he goes away, and then he comes back a second time, and, and, and he's made sure that he's got all his paperwork in order. Everybody's waiting to receive him. The, 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 the front desk at the, the prison has contacted the, the military and said that he's coming in. And they say, no, there's no visiting hours. There, this is a prison. That, yes, there's a prison here, but there are no visiting hours on the weekend. So he is not allowed to come into our military base, and we don't care whether you have whether you say you have an attorney or not. He says this is a constitutionally protected attorney visit with a client. You must allow me into the base. Susan Lindauer has a right to receive legal counsel, and and. And we know a few attorneys, a few uh, judges, and we know a few generals, and we're going to eat you for this. The, the the military goes out; they they get their their commander, they get their they get the the staff sergeant, they get their commander. They say, "No, you're not coming on our base. We don't care what you have to say about it. You're not coming on this base. You are not going to have a meeting with Susan Lindauer." Because they think that I am an Iraqi spy or an Iraqi agent of some nefarious, ridiculous, stupid thing. And so they're they're violently attacking my freedom. Meanwhile, I'm sitting there waiting for my uncle to arrive. And my uncle has the solution to the problem. He's trying to get me to sign something, to agree to something that he had, he had negotiated directly with, with Judge Mukasey for a settlement that would allow the government to say that I was, quote, not competent to stand trial. At that point, all I wanted was to get out of there. And if they wanted to say I was not competent, my, my, I remember, I kept remembering what my mother said, sticks and stones will break your bones. Words will never hurt you. If they want to say it, it doesn't make it true. Just get the heck out of there. Right. So I was like, I don't even care if they're saying I'm incompetent. Just, I will not accept drugging to hell with excuse me blankety blank to that never in a lifetime am i going to do that and this is what they were fighting for they wanted to chemically lobotomize me it was absolutely terrifying the most evil horrible thing that i've ever faced in my entire life absolutely scary beyond your your comprehension Uh, i'm i'm a crunchy granola kind of gal to begin with i eat apples and, and grapefruit and peaches and and I don't use drugs at all. I don't drink alcohol at all. So I'm I'm just not that kind of person who would ever do and who would who would even think that taking a drug is is acceptable. How did you I, get I, out? I How did you it. get out? Well, I fought like I've never fought anything in my life. But my uncle said that if I would agree, what we what we could do is we were saying that this was all politicized. So what he said is, well, Susan thinks this. Is, Susan, we, we we could see it's politicized. Susan will agree to have a, a, an evaluation done as soon as she gets home, and then she will agree to do whatever they say in the non-politicized setting. And so immediately when I came home, I was required in two weeks, the first two weeks, to immediately undergo an evaluation. The lady said that I should be drinking chamomile tea. (laughs) 
Chamomile tea. She said Susan needs chamomile tea. The only thing she's suffering from is post-traumatic stress caused by her incarceration. And once she recovers from the incarceration, she's going to be just fine. But how did they? <laughs> why did they let you go? Well, Muca- they fought Mukasey. They fought Mukasey very hard, uh, and and fought me brutally. They kept trying to. They they ended. I ended. I was supposed to be detained for only four months. They detained me for eleven months, and I was released on the day that Mukasey stepped down, resigned from the bench. He retired, and I was the very last case on his docket, the very last decision that he ever made, and he wrote a brilliant decision uh, on the uh, forcible drugging. Say, which can be used by any other defendant. That's the great thing about Mukasey. He understood. I was terrified whether he he would comprehend the the, the political. He I I needed him to comprehend that this was a political attack, but then also to be able to structure an escape. And what the crazy psychiatrists did was they declared that I needed to be forcibly drugged until I could be cured of saying that I was an asset and cured of saying that I'd been working in intelligence. And so Mukasey said, well, you mean to tell me that Susan is accused of having these contacts with the Iraqi government and she says she did it and you're saying that it never happened and that she's delusional for believing that she was involved in this work, but she's accused of doing it in the indictment. Right. Listen, I got to take a time. It is. It's catch twenty two. It's. Uh, it is. It's Kafkaesque, as you say. Let's uh, take a time out. One last segment to go with Susan Lindauer, the author of Extreme Prejudice, right here on the Conspiracy Show. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Susan Lindauer stays with us for a few moments yet. So uh, this Judge Mukasey, was he a district court judge? Judge Mukasey was the Chief Justice of the Southern District of New York, and he would go on to become the Attorney General after the Attorney General of the United States um, for George Bush. I consider that he was a hero to me in all of this. He saw with eagle eyes exactly what was going on, piercing intellect, penetrating the legal morass that had trapped me, I did not know how to save myself. I was terrified at this point because realized they did not want to let me go. It wasn't just that they wanted, they wanted to forcibly drug me, which was hideous, but they wanted to do so for 10 years while I would be locked up in prison with no escape. Um, at that point, I actually began to think that Canada looked really good and that if I could get released, I'd flee to Canada and demand a trial. Right, right. So, <laughs> and I'd say, help me. Give me a trial in Canada. So, you know? so after you're, you're released, uh, I mean, aren't you terrified to, to talk about this further, to speak out? Because Lord knows, well, I mean, by, if they're willing to time, drug you, they're willing to kill you. Well, at, by this time, um, I I was pretty smashed up. Um, they 
considered I was in a grave. On at on the day of my release from prison, I when they when they I was literally the last decision by Judge Mukasey in his career as a judge, and when they delivered it to, to me, my my attorney showed up in at the I was locked up at the Manhattan Correctional Center, uh, MCC, uh, locked up on, behind bars. They had transferred me from Carswell to New York, and my attorney came in and told me, Susan, you're saved, and I literally fell on the floor. I literally collapsed onto the floor. I was so scared. The next morning, when we were taken into court, I was just exuberant and, la- and smiling and waving to cheering Judge Bukasi. I wanted to, I was just like, I was so ecstatically happy. I was not even pretending to, to hold back. I was just like, thank you, God. You know, and, and there was only my boyfriend in the courtroom and... A man stepped forward and announced that he had been the attorney for Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega and Edwin Wilson, the black angel of the CIA who'd been involved in Libya, who had served 27 years in prison in solitary confinement until he was the, the CIA finally took pity on him and revealed that yes he'd been doing something to do with the CIA and that he had been an asset and he'd been doing something with Qaddafi's government it was my defense intelligence handler who had friends who were partners of Edwin Wilson on Libya and so this is a the the this is a small world cloak and daggers tiny little community of, of real agents what what you know spies spook agents uh, human intelligence uh, and all of us were connected together so this man who's he was the attorney for Noriega and Ed Wilson shows up at my release and he tells me that you must never reveal to anyone that you were an asset just they've taken pity on you just sh- go out there and shut up don't speak and if you don't speak then someday they'll forget about you <laughs> mm-hmm. someday they'll forget about you and so um, the we had been promised that they would drop the charges but they refused to drop the charges so they kept the charges hanging over me for about two and a half more years after my release refusing to go to trial calling me up to New York repeatedly threatening to take me into custody again, especially when John McCain was running for president. They were afraid that I'd spill the beans and blow his chances. I did insist on a, when they refused to drop the charges, I insisted on a competence hearing, which I had never been allowed to have. Throughout this whole time, I'd never been allowed one hearing. Let me just stop you there, because of course John McCain just passed away. But why did they think, or how would you ruin his chances? 
I had been arrested 30 days after I contacted the office of John McCain asking to testify about Iraq successful elements of Iraqi pre-war intelligence. As the CIA and defense intelligence asset who covered the embassy for seven years, I was going to reveal the true facts, which would show that Ahmed Shalabi's lies were being uh, countered throughout the entire period with excellent quality, outstanding intelligence, in fact, uh, direct intelligence, and that the intelligence community had done a superior job in maintaining these the, the contacts at the Iraqi embassy and should be very proud of the work that they had done. And of course, that was not what George Bush wanted anybody, anybody to hear. But again, John, so you took this to John McCain's office and it was ignored. I took to John McCain's office. No, no. I, it was not ignored. I took. I asked John McCain to testify, and 30 days later, the FBI showed up with a, a banging on my door with a warrant for my arrest on the Patriot Act. So 30 days after I requested to testify, I got arrested. And when I when uh, so in my I after a year and a half after my release from prison, I was given one hearing. I was allowed to have two witnesses come in no more one of them was a a former congressional chief of staff who confirmed that she'd known for years my uh that i was a cia and defense intelligence asset and that she knew my defense intelligence handler personally she always knew he was involved in intelligence she'd met richard fuse at the cia and she was confirming the intelligence side and then we had park godfrey testify and he gave lurid testimony about the 9-11 warnings that I had shared with him. Now, where was so Richard Fuse in all of this? Richard what? Fuse went black. He never spoke to me again. From the day of my arrest until this day, he has never spoken to me again. But but Park Godfrey testified about the 9-11 warnings. We thought the New York Times, everybody was there. AP was there. New York Times was there. Washington Post was there. And we thought somebody would pick up on that because it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And the next day, the New York Times ran a story saying that, quote, she stuck her tongue out at the judge, at the prosecutor, sorry. She stuck her tongue out at the prosecutor. She suffers nonstop hallucinations of religious mania. She believes in God and angels. I do. That's fact. I do. Um, she, she's, she's. Don't listen to anything she has to say. And I was staggered by this. I fully expected that the New York Times would would tell the truth about the 9-11 warnings and the confirmation from the chief of staff for Andrew Forbes of Long Island, New York, that I'd been an asset for years. Everybody knew this was true. Okay, it we've was got very about, easy to- We've got about five minutes here. Let me just run some basic questions by you. So, 9-11, to what extent did they, they, we'll talk about they in a moment, did they let it happen, make it happen, we're glad it happened. Make it happen. Uh, they, they, they had to. It was like the assassination of Kennedy. At one level, they had to take away the, the protections. They had to undo the the protocols that would have stopped the attack. But then also to clear it out, they had to have the demolition. They had to. Somebody had to go into the building and lay the bombs. So it was definitely a make it happen situation. Now, who are they? We're never going to know who they are. We're never going to know who they are. And the motivation? War with Iraq, profit, greed, total naked greed. Now, 
I wanted to ask you, are you familiar with the late Philip Marshall who wrote The Big Bamboozle? Yes, yes, yes. I, um, I, I met Philip on a number of occasions, interviewed him for my television show when, he, when I got the news that he supposedly had shot his two teenage children before turning the gun on myself. I was, I was shocked. I mean, uh, I had you know, no sense, obviously, in those meetings that he would be capable of something like that. But what did you make of— I doubt he was. I doubt he was capable of that. He was um, representing uh, United Na- United Airlines uh, pilots' families uh, in a civil suit against the Bush administration. And in this book, which really relies heavily upon the the first nine eleven commission, um, obviously the, the the fingers are pointed at the the, the the Saudis here that they were hired to do the dirty work. What are your thoughts? I think the Saudis were definitely hired to do the dirty work. Um, I think that they orchestrated it with Prince Bandar. In fact, there's a great guest that you should also interview uh, for your next show, which is Robert Alexander. You can get his phone number from Barbara Honiger. He says that that Prince Bandar came into his store with one of the host- with one of the hijackers. Um, and and that he puts them together, and that then he was inter- interviewed by John Brennan, and um, at the CIA, yeah, and James Clapper, John Brennan and James Clapper both separately interviewed him over nine eleven. And also, uh, according to the late Philip Marshall, these hijackers were using. Um, simulators uh, in the United States uh, so that they could they could learn to fly and uh, these 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 Boeings and so forth and, and, and he said there is no way that that someone would be able to walk into one of these training facilities uh, without raising suspicions and yet they did obviously they were they were using Boeing simulators yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it's not believable. The whole 9-11, the official story of 9-11 really stinks to high heaven, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. It really does. But they went to extraordinary lengths to cover it up. And how do you say, what just, do you say to people that say you can't keep an operation like this secret? Well, everyone who, there, there have been so many voices coming out blowing up this, the official story that it's only surprising that so many people still believe it because they've been we've we've exposed it again and again and again that it's a lie but they still keep repeating the lie and they and people kill still keep defending the lie and we began this uh, this program you were mentioning Donald Trump president Trump is reviewing documents do you how do you hold out any yes. hope that there'll be another investigation <laughs> I think that I, I would love to see an investigation. What I'd love to see is a presidential symposium where each of us who contributed those papers would be allowed, would be invited to speak and present our findings in front of a presidential audience, a you know, very high level audience that would be covered by C-SPAN and, you know, all of those, you know, hoity-toity ABC. The New- I don't hold out for hope for the New York Times, but <laughs> no, no. But you mean if President Trump were to try to do this, is this perhaps what is behind the uh, the calls for impeachment? The fact that he wants to do no. this? No, no, no. I don't think that's what what's behind the calls for impeachment. I think it's Trump derangement syndrome that's behind the calls for impeachment. There's nothing there. It's just the Democrats are 
uh, foaming at the mouth over Trump. And do you think? And it's very, it's very scary to see the intelligence community and the FBI together politicize uh, this attack on the president of the United States, attacking the choice of voters. This is a coup, and it needs to be uh, treated as it's treason, as far as I'm concerned. Now. Why, finally, final question, Susan, why are you allowed to to, to speak openly about this? Why are you not being targeted? Well, you know, it's interesting because right after my, uh, after the charges were dropped, exactly at that moment, perfect storm, Senator Patrick Leahy began pushing for the prosecution of George Bush and the cabal, the war cabal, uh, for war crimes on Iraq. And... I took my uh, a synopsis of my story, 117 pages, to Senator Patrick Leahy. He said, this is what really happened, and I'd like to testify. And he said, oh, my goodness, they almost held hearings, but the, comprom- the, the, the Obama did, wanted to go forward. He did not want to go back and stay fixated on the Iraqi problem in 9-11. He said, we have to have a we have to move forward. It'll, it's it's healthy for the nation to look ahead. But what Senator Patrick Leahy, God bless him, did, he insisted that I should have the right to speak on my own. And he said, she's got to be able to talk. Nobody better threaten her. The people who want the answers have got to be able to find them. And so CIA, we, we formally petitioned newly, newly nominated CIA director, um, Leon Panetta, who granted me permission to speak formally. There you go. Well, and it's all in the book as well. Treason Ex- is, excuse me. Treason is a matter of dates. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Well, they can read all about it in Extreme Prejudice. Susan, thank you so much for this. Thank you very much. And I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Well, that's it. Until next week. Thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Venzel, Ryan White. Back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.